So if you would, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. 17 verse 16, and we'll read through verse 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And that's Paul's experience in Athens. Um, Let me pray. Father, we 
I need your help today, Father. We, we ask that your word would point us to you and your great truths, your wonderful, majestic truths, and your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, guide us through this word, give us understanding, and give us the motivation to, to preach your truths and your word to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time, we looked at Acts 17, 16, and 17, and we saw the context in which Paul had arrived at Athens. And I asked and answered the question, what provoked Paul's spirit within him? As I gave you a description of Athens and how the people of Athens were worshiping, enslaved, and under the yoke of idols or false gods. And then we looked at what motivated Paul to take action. And what I said by taking action was to preach the gospel in Athens. And I said that Paul was motivated in two ways. Paul wanted God to be glorified and Jesus to have the fullness of his reward in Athens and throughout the whole world. And then second, Paul being saved by God's grace through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and given the free gift of the Holy Spirit, he was now motivated to preach the gospel because Paul now loved God and now loved people. He turned from his own ignorance and idolatry, his own self-love, and now had a true love for God. And I said that happened when God regenerated him, God justified him, God adopted him, and God was now sanctifying Paul as he's doing in all of us in here who believe. So today we're going to look at Acts 17, and we're going to go through 17 through 34 to see how Paul took action in Athens and preached the gospel. And as we go through these verses today, I want to remind you that Paul, he was alone in Athens. And Paul shared this experience with Luke afterwards so that Luke could write it down for the church. So Paul's alone, he's waiting waiting for Silas and Timothy, and I want to remind you that both Paul and Luke were led by the Holy Spirit, and Luke gives us a summary of Paul's experience and only writes down what is of most importance for us to read. And today we're just going to go through these verses, and we're just going to look at the basic truths. We're not, I started reading commentaries on it, and it it can turn into a confusing mess with all the different arguments. We just want to know the basic truths that will help our church take the message of God's truth to this city around us, to the family around us, to our neighbors around us. So let's start at Acts 17, 17 here. And it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And the first thing that we see is that Paul goes to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews and the devout persons, or otherwise known as the God-fearers. And for Paul, going to the synagogue to proclaim the gospel, it was just a normal part of his missionary journey. So... For instance, at the synagogue, Paul would prove from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Christ and that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. 
and he would take them to the Word of God. Of course, they had the Word of God opened, the Old Testament. And he would prove, he would reason, he would argue, he would debate, he would try to share this message that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah has come. He came to suffer. So this is just a normal part of what Paul does on his missionary journeys. And we see this before Paul's time in Athens, throughout the book of Acts, whenever they come to a city, they go in, the first thing they do is they go to the synagogue, they go to the place of worship. So in Acts 17, 1 through 3, I'll just read that. Now when they had passed through Amphalusis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So we see Paul also, after he leaves Athens, he does the very same thing. Acts 18, 4 through 5. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. And this is when he met up with Priscilla and Aquila. When Silas and Timothy arrived... From Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So this was just a common thing. Coming into a city, finds a synagogue, finds where they actually know the word of God, and then proves that the Christ is Jesus. So then we see him go from this synagogue, and back in verse 17 there in Acts 17, He goes from the synagogue, and he goes into the marketplace, and he does this every day with those who happen to be there. So Paul, alone, continues to go on into this marketplace, and and Paul does not seem to waste any time while he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come, as he goes from the synagogue to the public square to share the gospel with the people in the marketplace every day. He's not just sitting around. He's, he's, yeah, he's studying the city as he's come in. He's looking and observing the people, as we'll see. And the, the marketplace, Linsky writes of this, he says, it was by no means devoted only to selling and buying all sorts of provisions, nor was it frequented only by busy, bustling crowds that were occupied with nothing else. The Athenian Agora was also the public meeting place for philosophers and their following, for idlers and persons of leisure, a place of conversation, discussion, plus business. So all of this gathering was happening at the marketplace. Everybody was there. And in verse 18, we'll move on. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so Luke here, he introduces us to the two major worldviews of the people that Paul came into contact with in Athens and at this marketplace. The Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. And these were the two 
intellectual rivals in Athens at the time. They were friendly and tolerant of one another, and it seems that they even team up together against Paul. So Linsky, he gives a good description of these philosophies. And as we read the commentary, we can see that the unbelieving world has not changed much in the last 2,000 years. So I'm gonna gonna read what Linsky writes about these philosophies and just think about your culture that you live in and the people you talk to and this secular humanism religion that has overtaken America. And we'll see, it hasn't changed much. So Linsky, he writes, the Epicureans were quite atheistic in their speculation. They thought that the world was formed by a fortuish concourse of atoms and was not created, not even formed by divine power. While they permitted a certain belief in the gods, they treated them as phantoms who were without influence upon the world and upon our life. They mocked at the popular mythology but presented nothing better. Thus, their view of the soul was materialistic. At death, it was dissolved and dissipated in the elements, thus ending forever the existence of man. Life, therefore, was not regulated by higher moral or spiritual interests. Its highest aim was gratification. Gross and sordid, even vicious and criminal, if one was inclined that way. So whatever makes you feel good, right? Or refined and aesthetic, if one had tastes of aspirations in this direction, pleasure, not duty, was the substance of this philosophy. The means to attain it was called virtue. This was a doctrine which could not produce anything but selfishness and sensuality when men put it into practice. Note how little certain schools of philosophy of today have made beyond this old Epicurus and his following. So the Stoics, the Stoics were pantheists. They condemned the worship of images and the use of temples and considered them only as ornaments of art. God was merely the spirit of reason of the universe. Matter was inseparable from his deity and he was conceived as impressing order and law upon it, since he regulated it as an inner principle. The soul was corporeal. At death it was burnt and absorbed into God. The Stoic moral code was higher than that of the Epicureans. Their ideal being an austere apathy and unconcern, which regarded itself superior to passion as well as to circumstance, pleasure was no good pain, no evil. Reason was the guide and decided what was good and what was evil. He who followed reason was perfect and sufficient in himself. When reason saw no more life, it dictated suicide as the most reasonable thing. Its first two leaders died by their own hand, and Romans who felt attracted to this sterner philosophy often followed their example by committing suicide. Stoism was a philosophy of human pride. It's all about me. Both of these philosophies were diametrically opposed to Christianity with its doctrine of God, the soul, sin, redemption, salvation in Christ, the resurrection of the body, and eternal life. 
they opposed all of that. So we see the world has not changed much. We still see these same things today when talking to our family, when talking to professing Christians that don't read the word. So let's move on. Acts 17, 18. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? The word babbler here when translated from the Greek means seed picker. And this word was applied to birds who scavenged for seeds. And this was a slang word that these philosophers would use for a person who would pick up the best ideas from others, but really have no understanding of what these ideas meant. This seemed to be the harshest persecution against Paul in Athens. He was called a seed picker, a scavenger. Stole ideas from here or there and just brought it to us, had no understanding. So Paul really wasn't persecuted. I mean, this was easy compared to what he'd been through. Which is, I mean, really where we're at today besides what Greg's dealing with this week. And um, most people, they'll just call you names or counsel you or, you know, just not come to the family function next weekend. So others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so although Paul was communicating the truths of God clearly in the marketplace, the people listening were misunderstanding Paul and coming to the wrong conclusions of what is the gospel. And these people that Paul was sharing the gospel with thought Paul was presenting two foreign gods to them. So when we see because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, they see that and they think, okay, Jesus, these new gods, and and you have to go back to the Greek translation, but it shows Jesus as a, a male god, a male figure. And then they believe the resurrection was a goddess, a female figure. They thought Paul was just bringing in two more gods to add to their gods. So these people, they're interested Right? Two things from this verse that, that I thought was interesting is these, these people are confusing the truth of God that Paul's giving them with their own imagination, with their own depravity. So the two things I saw is Paul was listening to the people that he was sharing the gospel with and paying attention to their conclusions on what they thought Paul was saying. He wasn't just throwing the word out there, throwing the truths out, and not listening, not paying attention so that he could just go back to his buddies and say, look, I, I shared the gospel, and, and they can say, well, what happened? I don't know, <laughs> right? I was just supposed to share the gospel. Well, that's, that's not what Paul does. He, he actually observes. He, comes, he listens to what they're saying. He comes to a conclusion on what they believe after the fact. When sharing the gospel with people, this is part two that I saw in this, when sharing the gospel with people, we must be clear in communicating the word of God and not give up on using God's truth even when our hearers are misunderstanding the truths of God. So yeah, you give somebody the truth and then they come up with another question. Go right back to the truth and hopefully it'll lead you to your Bible. But Paul's just using these truths, using these basic truths of God's word with these people. He's not presenting it chapter and verse. He's not reasoning right straight from the word. 
but he has given basic truths. And so we see that, um, let's see here, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what do we do? We keep communicating the gospel to him, hoping God will regenerate them, you know, hoping they'll be born again, hoping they'll become a brother or a sister of ours. So in Acts 17, we'll look at verses 19 through 21 now. And as I said, we're just going through this quickly. We're just looking at the basics of it. So 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So I wrote down here, we see that these people are not only interested in what Paul is teaching, but most people want to hear something new. And this is a form of leisure or entertainment. And they are somewhat polite with Paul about it. They just, this is just fun. I, I want to hear new things. And that's where our culture differs now. They don't want to hear anything from you. But if you can catch their attention, if you can throw something out there, then they will speak with you. So Areopagus, translated to the Latin, means Mars Hill. So that's where we get that term. Paul was at Mars Hill. It's just Latin for Areopagus. And we'll look at this Areopagus And F.F. Bruce gives a good description of this. But there was in Athens a venerable institution, the court of the Areopagus, which exercised jurisdiction in matters of religion and morals. This aristocratic body of venerable antiquity received its name from the Areopagus, the Hill of Heirs, the Greek god of war. Southwest of the Acropolis, on which it traditionally met at the time with which we are dealing, it held its ordinary meetings in the royal colonnade in the northwest corner of the Agora. It continued to meet on the Areopagus to judge cases of homicide. Its traditional power was curtailed with the growth of the Athenian democracy in the 5th century BC, but in Roman times its authority was enhanced and it commanded great respect Before this body, then, Paul was brought, not to stand trial in a forensic sense, nor yet to be examined with a view to being licensed as a public lecturer, but simply to have an opportunity of expanding his teaching before the experts. So they bring him in before the experts. In this Areopagus, it would have probably sat around 500 people. And so this would have been... In our day, I look at it as like he was going to testify before Congress, or it's kind of a mix, though. He's going to testify before Congress. He's given his speech at the Oscars, and he's speaking on the Joe Rogan podcast. It's a mixture. It's a whole mixture. All the who's who is listening. All the who's who is there. Show off to possibly hear. I don't know that they truly wanted to hear Paul, but it's part of their ritual. So Paul addresses the Areopagus 
in verses 20 through 31. And as we look at these verses, I want to point out that Paul is very respectful of these people as he shares the truths of God's gospel in a way that confronts their unbiblical worldviews that holds them in bondage to these idols and false gods. Also, Paul is not reasoning with them from the scriptures as he does amongst people who know the scriptures, but he preaches God's truths according to the scriptures just as he had done with Barnabas at Lystra. So this is nothing new for Paul. And we'll read that in Acts 14. If you turn back over to Acts 14, verses 15 and 17. And Paul and Barnabas, they go to Lystra. And Paul performs this miracle. And I'll start at, I'll start at verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So these people, they... They turn them into their own gods. They start sacrificing. Paul doesn't just whip out his Bible and say, look right here in Isaiah chapter 44. Do not fashion your own God, right? Or 42, I am the only God. I will give my glory to another. No, they just give the basic truths. And he's going to give these same basic truths in his speech at Athens for the most part. So just... Think about that when we go through it and see how the similarities are of what Paul's saying. So back to Acts chapter 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And as I said, Paul was, he was gentle with them. He wasn't harsh towards them. But Paul does, he, he does not hurl any accusations at these people in Athens. Paul actually observed their ways of living according to their worldviews and says that they are very religious, meaning that they live and worship according to what they believe. So they live and worship these idols and these false gods according to what they believe. So they are very religious, just like today, just like the people Greg's dealing with. They live their religion. They believe it to the point where they will try to stop you, stop what you believe. 
And Paul says in verse 23, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And Paul simply says to the people of Athens here that he has observed their idols, and by erecting a shrine to the unknown God, and it's not that they're worshiping God unknowingly, but he says they have given their own confession of their ignorance, and that none of their gods can be known because they are all false gods made by the hands of men. There's a bunch of different arguments on that, but that seems to be the reasonable argument there. So let's read verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul's proclaiming these truths, these truths, and they're, they're going against what these people truly believe. And Paul shares the truth about God in a way that everyone in Athens at the Areopagus can understand. And at the same time, Paul explains to the people that their worldview is false and is opposed to God's truth. Everything he says, he opposes what they believe and how they live. So Paul, he, he says there, there is only one God who is creator of everyone and everything. And this God who is creator is also in sovereign control of everything and is also self-sufficient, not needing men or anything made by man. You see that? He does not live in temples made by man. He's being Lord of heaven and earth, right? He made the world and everything in it. And then he says, and he goes on to say that God alone gives to all mankind life and breath and everything which is the opposite of what the Athenians believed. The Athenians believed they could come up in their own imagination, make these idols, worship these idols, and gain something from that. That was their whole goal. We do that today with child sacrifice, right? We'll be richer if we get rid of those babies, right? We'll be more comfortable. It's all about me, me, me. These same philosophies are going down. We do it as Christians, right? We don't preach the gospel so that we can be comfortable, right? So we shouldn't think ourselves more above these people and their unbelief, but... But let's move on and we'll look at Verses 26 and 27 of Acts chapter 17 there. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So Paul says that God being the only creator created every nation of men, every ethnicity. God created only one race of people on this earth, and God created them from one man. And that just blows away most of the arguments today of equity, of BLM, 
No, we're all one people. God made us all. We all come from God. We are one race. Spiritually, we're two races. We're one race under Adam, and we're one race under Christ. But everybody's the same, same blood. And Paul says that God is so involved in the lives of all men that God even determined their time periods and their boundaries. So everything in your life, God has determined. It doesn't make you a robot, but everything you have comes from God. Everything is determined. This time period that you live in, your parents, your children, God is in control of all that. And it says he's not far from you because he is in control of all that. So Paul continues on. And he says, right there he says, they, they, um, sorry, I forgot to turn my page here. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So Paul says that God created man to seek him and to find him. But we know men are in the darkness. They can't find him. They're blind. They're deaf. But Paul's explaining to these people, Paul, God actually made you to seek him and find him. And I'm here to show you the way. So look at verse 28 there in Acts 17. For in him we, ha- we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And Paul says that without God, man could not live for a moment, Right? We live and move and have our being. Without God, man could not move a muscle. You couldn't even move without God. And without God, man would not even exist. So Athenians, you would not be here today if it was not for this one and true God that I'm proclaiming to you. Paul goes on and he says that even your own poets have said that we all come from one creator and are his offspring. And the poets, they had said, for we are indeed his offspring. That doesn't mean we're children of God, but the poets are even saying, we have a creator. We all come from one creator. Somehow we know this. We don't know how, but just listen to us. And let's look at verse 29 here. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And so Paul's saying, being then God's offspring, he's not saying that we are all God's children, but that God created everyone in his image and that everyone is valuable to God because they are his creation. That's all Paul's saying is, yeah, I agree with your poets. You are, you have been created. And I'm saying that God created you in his image. You are valuable to him. And Paul says here to the Athenians that their error is self-evident. Right? 
an image that we, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The Athenians, their error is self-evident, and being God's creation, they should not think of God as a material object, object or an image made by their own thoughts and hands. He's basically saying, you are sinning against God in a way that you don't even have the right to. You have taken the God that created you, and you have become the creator of him, you think. So he goes on in Acts 17.30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And this is just the basics of the gospel. It may be left out in the gospel these days, but God has commanded, commanded, not invited you, not asked you to repent. He's commanded all men everywhere to repent, believe in Christ. Turn from your idols, turn to the one and true living God. It's a command. And he's overlooked your time of unbelief. Out of his kindness, he has overlooked your sins against him. Right? The times of ignorance God overlooked. We see this happen over and over in the Old Testament. God allots a time period, gives them that time period, and then comes back and judges them for their sins, or in the case of Nineveh, saves them from their sins. Listen to Besser as he writes about this verse. The times of ignorance God overlooked. What did God do? He had looked at the Athenians. Had he looked at the Athenians with the fire flames of his holy eyes, there would have been no Athenian this many a day. They would have been wiped out. But God overlooked the times of the ignorance by looking at Christ and the plan of salvation for the coming ages. He bore the idolatries of the Gentiles. He ceased not to reveal himself to them in nature and providence. And because of their guilty ignorance, he made them feel his wrath by giving them over to the effects of this ignorance, their depravity. But at last, the great day for which God had long, had so long been preparing and waiting in patience, and in love had arrived. Redemption was complete. The gospel could go forth to all the world. So even the cross was on God's timing. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Let's move on to verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul goes back to the resurrection. But he doesn't go back to the resurrection in the way you hear it today. Paul does not spend time trying to prove that the resurrection happened. As many do in our day. That's usually the the Easter message. You have to prove the resurrection happened, right? And you have to have faith not to believe in the resurrection. Have you heard that? 
But Paul emphasizes that the resurrection of Jesus proves that God has appointed Jesus as the man who will judge the world in righteousness. Paul is simply preaching what the apostles were commanded to preach. By this resurrection, the emphasis, the resurrection of Jesus proves that God has appointed Jesus as the man who will judge the world in righteousness. And we should, we should think about that. Is that part of our gospel? Yes, we have new life because of the resurrection. We have new life in the resurrection. Jesus is alive, has been resurrected, but it's this resurrection that God sets forth as proof that Jesus will judge you for your sins. He will judge you in righteousness. That's part of Paul's message. Is it part of our gospel today? Do we tell the people around us, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Or do we tell them, God has overlooked your unbelief, but he has appointed a day where he will judge you in righteousness through his son, and by the resurrection of his son, he has given you evidence that he will judge you personally. But come to him today. Repent. Turn from your idols. Turn to the one and true living God. Have life in Christ. We love you. We want fellowship with you. But if not, you will be judged. We're not, we're not telling people they'll go to hell. That's not the message of Paul. We're not telling people they'll go to heaven. Right? We're not humanists. We don't want your best life here. We don't want your best life to be in heaven. We don't want your worst life to be in hell. We want you to come to a person. You need to know a person, right? We want you to come to Jesus Christ. That's heaven. That's eternal life. We want you to know God the Father through Jesus Christ. That's your inheritance. It's not about you being happy because you go to heaven. It's not about you being sad because you go to hell. It's about you coming to a person who's been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead, to judge the world in righteousness, and to give new life to all those who believe. We want to point them to a person. That's what Paul's doing. And I said, Paul is simply preaching what the apostles were commanded to preach. How do I know this? And if you turn over to Acts chapter 10, verse 34. And this is what connects the apostles. And this is good that it connects the apostles. This is why the book of Acts, this is why we have it in the church, as we've talked about a little bit, right, David? We need to know that Paul was commanded to preach the same gospel as Peter. So we see Peter here with the Gentiles. It says in, in verse 34 of chapter 10, and I'll read to verse 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And here, listen to this. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Paul is simply preaching in Athens what Peter was commanded to preach. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And Paul uses the resurrection as the evidence that Jesus is the one who was appointed by God. That needs to be part of our gospel. That will give eternal life. That will point people to the one who will not only judge them and righteousness, but give them new life. So let's go back to Acts chapter 17 and just finish up here. Verses 32-34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. And so this, this Areopagite, he's one of the 12 judges of the Athenian court. That's what the scholars say. So you have one of the higher-up judges, the elites, the guy that's supposed to know everything, and he comes and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ from Paul's preaching just the gospel truths. That's how powerful our gospel is. We have a God who is powerful. And he is close. And so there's some that look at this and they say, well, Paul obviously failed because there wasn't a lot of believers after this. We don't even, they don't even mention that the people are baptized, although we know they were. But there's just a few of them. And we shouldn't think like that. We should think, we have a brother. It says, well, here, we have a sister. This was worth all of Paul's time in Athens, right? We grew the church by one this year. <laughs> right? Maybe two. <laughs> we lost way more. But brothers and sisters in Christ we have now because of God's glory. He is sovereign in control of this. 
we shouldn't think that we have to have all the numbers, right? Let's uh, look at Luke 15, actually. We'll, we'll start, we'll go in Luke 15, verse 3, and I just wanted to read to you some of these verses just so we can keep this in our mind. And these are some parables that Jesus spoke to, and we're not looking at the reason he spoke these parables, but we can glean some stuff from them. So in verse 3, so he told them, as he's talking to these Pharisees and scribes, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after one that is lost until he finds it? And when has he found it? He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. So when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. What Paul always say, two, maybe more. Think about the rejoicing in heaven. Right? Again, verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses the coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently under until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So with that, we just praise God for what he did in Athens through Paul. Amen.